Even if you're only planning on one flight this year, learning to fly like a pro can reduce the stress and anxiety that often accompanies air travel these days. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, our frequent flyer friend Johnny Jett updates us on tips for enjoying your time at the airport and on the plane. Fun on the flight can start with how you get along with the flight attendants. I always bring these guys chocolates. They will treat you like a rock star. We've also invited back experts on the European Union to help us Americans better understand the economic, political, and social pressures that European countries are facing this year. Most European countries are in trouble. And why it should matter on this side of the Atlantic. The United States and the European Union, they're both part of what we call the transatlantic community. We are the West, the West with a capital W. The politics of the European Union and tips for enjoying your next flight. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. For a generation now, the European Union has provided a structure to help unite the economies of countries that over the centuries seem to have put as much energy into fighting as into trading. But today, the EU is being tested in ways that Americans don't often understand. Coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves, EU experts from both sides of the Atlantic help us put Europe's big issues in context. And understanding the airline industry and tips on making your next flight a pleasure can make for happier travels. So just before the holidays, we invited Johnny Descala to fly up to our studio to share more of his pointers with us for reducing the stress and hassle of flying. As a frequent, frequent flyer, he goes by the moniker Johnny Jet. That's also the name of his website, where he links to travel deals and posts photos and reports from his many trips abroad. Johnny, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now, how much do you fly? Actually, my flight up here yesterday was my 100th flight of the year. You spend a lot of time in the air. At least every three to four days, I'm in the air. A lot of people are paranoid about health on planes. Do you do anything to not breathe bad air, or are you concerned about that? You know what? The air is actually safer than most hospitals. The way people get sick is because they touch the seat, they touch the overhead, and they then touch their mouth and eyes. What you need to do is just wipe down your seat, especially if you're going on a long flight. Quickly wipe it down. With what? Just an antibacterial wipe. So you bring an antibacterial wipe with you? Almost every time. So you don't buy this business that people pick up colds by breathing the air on the flight? I really don't. I just think it's someone before you sick, they sneeze, they touch the seat or the controllers, and then they touch their mouth. A little while ago, you took the longest flight in the world, I read on your website. Yeah, I've, I've been on the longest commercial flight in the world. That's Singapore to New York or Newark. Singapore to New York, how many hours? 18 and a half. What happens to your body when you're in the air for 18 and a half hours? You know, you get really jet lagged. But actually, that flight now is all business class. Oh, when I, I when that. I first took it, when they first came out, they had part of it was coach and part of it was business class. But now it's 100 seats of all business class, and it's unbelievable. Now, I flew, I think, L.A. to Sydney, and it was... 14 and a half. 14 and a half hours. I'm, I'm used to going to Europe in nine hours. And 14 and a half hours, my toes swelled up. Did they really? You got to get up every hour. You got to drink a lot of water. I, you know, I hang out and talk to the flight attendants. It's a very good idea to get up and walk. The flight attendants, they've done their work. They're bored. They're in the back. You can chat with them. Uh, yeah, they're sitting yeah. there and just wait till they have done their work. What's your trick for being comfortable on a flight? You know, you got to be prepared. I try to get a bulkhead seat or an exit row. I bring an eye mask, earplugs. I always bring a bottle of water. So you don't wait for their water. You've got your own water. Yeah. I spend the $3 in the airport or right. if it's a good city where they have, you know, drinkable water, right. I'll fill up a water bottle. A bulkhead seat oftentimes gives you less stretching your legs room, doesn't it? It all depends. The worst seat in the plane for me is where I can't stretch my legs out. I'm six foot two, and I, I need to stretch my legs out. But I flew to Atlanta a few days ago on a triple seven bulkhead. I had more leg room than they did in first class. So it all depends on the aircraft. Go to seatguru.com, okay, and they will tell important. you. This is Seatguru.com. Yes, and that will tell you the best seat on that aircraft. So you have to know the aircraft. Because a lot of times, I'll be checking in, and this woman at the at the desk, she said, where do you want to sit? And, and I've got a friend here, but I don't know the best seat. Oh, my so, gosh. <laughs> so what's the advantages? Front of the plane, back of the plane? You know. Well, I prefer the front row. because the back of the plane is usually more bumpy. More bumpy. So okay. you can you, you'll feel a little bit more sick. Right. So, you know, right over the wings is the most stable. But is that right? Okay. My, my, I try to get the exit row or the okay. bulkhead. I had a window seat the other day with no window. It was one of the... That's the row old, 10, probably, row on a 737. <laughs> that was it. I couldn't believe it. I was looking at the wall. Oh, my God. That's And it's another reason why to go to a website like Seat Guru because you want to make sure that you can look out the window. Because when you check in at the machine at the airport, it says, do you want to change your seats? I always, I always say, yeah, because I want to review what's open. And I usually see that the flight's full. And then I get on the plane and it's far from full. Well, because there could be a misconnection. So what I also do, it's a great tip what you just had. 
but also when you get to the gate, right before you're getting on the plane, say, by the way, did you upgrade any of these elite flyers? Usually they do, and then you take their seat because they were in the best coach seat. Oh, so they chose the best seats first, and then they get they get They get upgraded, and then you take their seat. Very nice. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking to Johnny Jett, who really, we've had Johnny on the show before, and you have such an appetite for understanding the airline industry and understanding the the Internet for travelers. It's just so fun to talk to you. Johnny's website is johnnyjett.com. You can email us anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. Jeff in Brunswick, Georgia, emailed us and said, when flying from the East Coast to the U.S. to Europe, what's the minimum number of hours I should allow for a layover so I don't miss my connecting flight? That's a good question. I mean... Because a lot of times my travel agent books me and I'm thinking, God, that's just like an hour. Am I going to make it? Now, I don't check any bags, so I've got a, a better chance of getting everything. For sure. It's always good if you're getting on the first flight of the day from your starting point, right. you have a less chance of getting delayed. So then you don't have to have as long of a, a layover. So early departures are more likely to be on time. For sure. But is there a legal... A travel agent has a legal minimum. Of it's time. usually 30 minutes for domestic, and I'm not sure for international, but you know, you don't want to rush. So right. give yeah. it two to three hours. Yeah. And bring a computer, bring a book. That's the biggest thing that people get all worried about or frazzled about. They show up to the airport last minute and they're always scrambling and then right. they forget about things. You know, for me, I don't want to be all stressed out and uptight before I go on a trip. There's enough stuff to be stressed out about. So don't cut it too tight and anticipate delays and celebrate the delays. Have something good to do. But, you know, a lot of people don't realize my, one of my best tips is to be friendly. Yeah. You watch these people get on the plane and yeah. they're taking their problems out <laughs> on the gate agents, on the flight attendants, and their flight's going to be miserable. I always bring these guys chocolates. Oh, and, really? And, and, I expect them to give me chocolates. You give them the chocolates. Yeah, you have to have the reverse thing. <laughs> you bring them chocolates and they will treat you like a rock star. Well, that's good. A lot of people have to choose airports. When you're traveling domestically in the United States, what are your thoughts? Which are the ones to try to go through? Which are the ones to try to avoid and why? Well, it all depends on the time of the year. So mm-hmm. in the wintertime, I'll try and avoid the northern airports. Like I won't connect in Chicago or Detroit. Right. I'd rather connect in Houston or Dallas or Miami. It all depends on where I'm going. So Houston's much less likely to be closed because of weather. Whereas Chicago, you're, there's a good chance you're going to miss your plane in bad weather. Yeah, because you never know if there's going to be a snowstorm or not. But one thing people don't realize is when they're going to Europe and you're going to make a connection, especially in the wintertime, Toronto is a great airport to go through because those guys are ready for the snow. They know the, the snow is really? coming. So Toronto handles snow better than Chicago? They do, which is, huh. you know, Chicago seems to be surprised by snow. But in what scenario would an American flying to Europe go through Toronto efficiently from a flight point of view? Oh, there's a lot. A really? lot a lot do it. What airlines go from Toronto direct to Europe? Well, Air Canada. Okay. I mean, that would be Air Canada. And you can also go through Vancouver for um, yeah, Asia. Is Air Canada competitive with... British Air or For whatever. sure. And actually, I have actually done British Air from Toronto to London. And so it's six hours. Generally, for Americans looking at Europe, what are the major airlines and, and how do they stack up with each other from a price point of view? Because I always like to go over the pole nonstop, if I can, from the West Coast. From to, Seattle. Yeah. So do you take British Airways? I take British Air or I Is take uh, Lufthansa. Okay, so you got to go to Frankfurt then. Yeah. It all depends. I mean, one price could be high on one air carrier one day or one hour. Yeah, the air fares are always changing. They're it always changing. Depends on the season, the airline, the what their uh, promotions are. There's not one website out there. All right, I'm talking with Johnny Jet, and his website is johnnyjet.com. Johnny, in what scenario would anybody want to use an actual travel agent as opposed to booking their flight on the web? Actually, I'm a big fan of travel agents. So especially if you have a once-in-a-lifetime trip, a honeymoon if you're going on a cruise, you go to a cruise specialist because these guys can get you an upgrade. I understand for cruises, it is sort of the domain these days of travel agents, right? For sure, I would do that. But yeah. I also call my travel agent for international trips. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I've got a lot of friends that just, you know, flying domestically, it's just a slam dunk. Go online, do yeah. some sort of search, don't, grab the best one, right? they, I don't even think the travel agents want to be bothered with the domestic okay. stuff. But international, I always use a living, breathing travel agent for international. And I'm glad you do too because you're much more aggressive in, uh, you know, all this modern kind of technology. But especially for like, Business class and first class. These right. guys have all the discounts. Right. Go to a consolidator. Right? So you go to a travel agent that has access to consolidator tickets. Yep. And they make a commission from you, or do they just charge you a fee? How do they make their they money? They usually charge me $25, but on the international stuff, they'll get a kickback from they'll the airlines. They'll get a kickback, too. But if it's a domestic, which I rarely do, but sometimes I will call once in a great while. The one uh, caveat, I suppose, is they do not have access to the discount flights within Europe. Because uh, a lot of those are bookable only through the web. Correct, correct. But I think the big concern for a lot of Americans is just getting over the pond. Yeah. And it, actually, it's so cheap to go conventional airlines in Europe if you book it That's smartly. If, and if you pack right. Right. Don't, don't walk around with a huge bag. and Tell us about that. 
everyone knows all these low fare carriers, they're not so low. And if you have a lot of bags, one of my buddies just got charged $200 to check like a, a 40 pound bag. But another thing is there's a website called whichbudget.com, W-H-I-C-H budget.com. They have a guide to every low fare carrier. You just put in what city you're going to. You can search that and bam, you know what the cheapest flight is from Madrid to Paris. Exactly. All right. Johnny, what do you think about TripAdvisor? You know, I have a love and hate relationship with them, actually. The big problem with them, I just don't trust them. You don't trust TripAdvisor or the people who are filling up its columns? We don't trust the people. The comments. You don't know who's writing the review. A lot of those reviews have an agenda. They're either in favor or against by the hotelier or by his enemies, by his competition. How do you know? You don't. That's the problem. That's why I don't love them. But I have checked it because it does give you kind of an idea. I'm not a huge fan of TripAdvisor. It is powerful. My hotel friends in Europe, guys who run hotels, they are terrorized by TripAdvisor because a few bad comments and and it goes viral and nobody's going to go there. Right. Every hotel would have competition and it has an agenda. You don't need to be a rocket science to write your own reviews, right? Well, it could be a disgruntled employee. Right. It could be one of their competitors. Or on the flip side, they could be paying guests to write reviews or their friends or the marketers. I've got friends in Europe that run hotels and they bribe their guests to write in TripAdvisor. As a consumer... It's handy to get everybody's feedback, but there's no way to know the veracity of those comments. Use it as a secondary resource, I think, but if you're relying your whole trip on comments on TripAdvisor, you don't know the veracity of these comments. But I actually have a better website. It's called trippy.com, T-R-I-P-P-Y.com. They're actually kind of taking TripAdvisor on. What they do is it's basically like TripAdvisor, but it's only for your friends on Facebook. So you'll get the reviews from your friends, and you trust your friends. So that's what I like about that. So that that solves my problem with TripAdvisor. So if you're going to a destination, you put in, I'm going to Paris. Can you give me some advice? Where should I eat? Where should I sleep? And all your friends will chime in. What if you don't have friends that know Paris? Well, then you're not going to Paris. (laughs) (laughs) What are your frustrations with TSA? It's just not consistent. How so? Even at LAX, I'll go to one terminal and they'll make you take your belt off, and the right. other terminal they won't, and they have just they just have different rules. What triggers special treatment? Do you have any idea? With TSA, you just got to be friendly to them. Do you go through the scanner, or do you get the pet down? Whatever is available. I mean, I, I don't opt out. All right. On the flight, you talk about you bring uh, masks so you can have darkness. On a long flight, yes. On a long flight. For me, not being cold. I've been on some intercontinental flights that are so cold for some reason. I'm glad I kept all of my warm stuff with me. I didn't check it. People don't realize that the planes are freezing. Yeah. They're going to a hot destination, so they're wearing shorts. And you look at them, and they look like an icicle. Bring a sweater. I always uh, anticipate a cold flight. And then also, I bring my noise reduction headphones. Honestly, I would rather go economy class with noise reduction headphones than business class without. You and I are different. (laughs) I don't like the rumble Well, in business class, they're going to give it to you anyway. (laughs) Noise reduction headphones? Yeah, if you're on a good airline. i got to spiff up my act here. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been speaking with Johnny Jett, and his website's johnnyjett.com. And uh, we live in a fast-changing age, and if you want to travel fast and efficient, you got to know what's going on. Thanks, Johnny, for all your help. Hey, thanks for having me. There's more with Johnny Jett in the radio section of ricksteves.com. And you can find a shortcut to his past visits with us from the More Details link in this week's show. Next, we'll get the big picture on some of the pressures facing the countries in the European Union. We're at 877-333-7425. It's Travel with Rick Steves. While American pundits and politicians churn out hour after hour of talking points and discussions on economics and politics, in Europe, the same kinds of issues are taking on some interesting twists, especially now that Europeans are realizing that their debts can no longer be ignored. 
Our guests right now on Travel with Rick Steves are experts on European Union affairs. And they join us to help us better understand what European governments are struggling with. Ben Curtis teaches political science at Seattle University. During the summer breaks, he's also leading tour groups around Central and Eastern Europe where he teaches Americans about the culture and history of Europe. Hilbert Beis is a dual American and European citizen. He lives in the vortex of Europe's political swirl in Brussels. That's where he's a lecturer in geopolitics at the European Communications School. He was also the Secretary General of the European Institute for International Relations. Together, Ben and Hilburn are bringing us their informed perspectives on some of the big-picture issues facing Europeans and how they relate to the similar issues North Americans are grappling with as well. Hilburn and Ben, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much, Rick. Thank you. Ben, what is the European Union? The European Union is a response to the catastrophe that Europe suffered for this first half of the 20th century. And it was an attempt to unify Europe first economically, secondarily and later and only partially politically to try to bring these countries together to have a firmer foundation so that the kind of wars and destruction that we saw in World War I and World War II would not happen again. Interesting. So in the first half of the 20th century, there was two devastating wars. The idea is interweave their economies so they really can't afford to fight each other. And if there's other benefits, uh, that's great. But the primary thing was integrate economies to avoid future wars. Exactly. Start with growing together economically, and then later some political growing together would be added. If you look at the primary purpose of the European Union to avoid wars, major wars within Europe, 60 years later, you could look back and consider it a success? Uh, I think that in many ways the European Union is a huge success. It might not look like such a success from the difficult times that we've seen in the last few years, but in a broader perspective, there's many successes. Hilburn Bies, you live and work in Belgium, right? Yes, I do. So you're in the middle of the fray. Has the European Union in its first 60 years, if you get the big picture, is it considered a success or has it been a regrettable, idealistic sort of failure? It's fashionable of late to consider it an ideological or an idealistic failure. Um, but for all the people who benefit from free trade, who are able to use a common currency, and uh, also for a series of political institutions, including national parliaments who now have considerably less lawmaking to do because everything's transferred down and reduced in some sense to uh, implementation of EU laws, it's considered a success. Directives are coming out of Brussels and then individual countries' parliaments are implementing those directives? Yes. In fact, 80% of what national governments do in Europe, in a rough sense, this is not a number that I've studied myself, but in a general sense, 80% of what governments do is implement European directives. Ben, if you were in a European parliament anywhere from Germany to Spain or Portugal or, or Greece, what would some of the frustrations be as you get these directives coming down to you from Brussels? Some of the frustrations, it's interesting, you can look at it from two ways. You can look at it perhaps from a, these days, a northern perspective and a southern perspective in that the directives coming down from, say, Brussels from the northern countries, the northern European countries, say the Netherlands, Germany, Denmark, um, even the UK to some extent, that some of these countries have better economic governance, more stable, productive economies, and the things that Brussels is telling them to do are not always perhaps quite um, as beneficial to those countries or not geared to help them as much as it's geared to help the southern countries. So what's good for Europe might not be good for Denmark. That's right. And what's good for Europe is sort of subsidizing Greece and Portugal. Exactly. The countries that these days need the most help and the original reasons why Europe was bounded together to sometimes to help those who were, you know, poorer and to create the solidarity. But when there has been big problems in the poorer countries, Greece is a big example these days, um, it's much harder to convince some of the northern countries, yes, let's have solidarity with a country that has mismanaged its economy in really terrible ways. Why would an enlightened or smart Dane or German willingly continue to bail out Greece? many reasons. I'll just focus on one and then maybe toss it to Hilbrand. I'm going to even go for an enormous kind of ideological reason, like why a Dane, say, would actually agree to the idea of I'm going to pour more money into Greece because the European project, the project of unification is worth supporting and it's in danger. I mean, there are cracks in the very foundations and there are powerful arguments for economic solidarity, for uh, even call it bailouts, 
right now for some of the countries that have had huge problems. And if I'm a Dane, I think, look, we have achieved so much together. We don't want to kind of squander that. Though, of course, there are arguments against it, too. No, Brent. I'd like to make a distinction. What's good for Europe isn't always what's decided in Brussels. And moreover, anything that's good for Europe will differ from one person's opinion or mindset to somebody else's. So it means that once you're implementing these directives that come in from Brussels, you're always going to find yourself dealing with things that, yes, could be important, but aren't always. Does it really matter if we have a unified way of dealing with, for instance, certain kind of minorities? A country may want to decide how to deal with minorities themselves. Um, harmonizing education may mean that uh, in a country that used to distinguish its lawyers by a five-year study, we'll have to reduce that to a different uh, number of years and find a way to, to still maintain their rigor in, in education. And so it, it means it's just a, a whole bunch of hassle, extra. It's just a, a lot easier just to deal with a few million Danes instead of 300 million Europeans, I yeah, suppose. Yeah, 5 million Danes, absolutely. How many nations are involved in the EU? 27. 27. Do they have to get a majority or a supermajority or complete consensus? Well, it happens in um, what's called the uh, Council of the European Union. That's where the heads of state get together and they make some ideas. Those ideas will go over to the European Commission. The European Commission will turn them into uh, a proposition, similar to perhaps a, a bill, that then goes to the Parliament, and the Parliament will decide about it. But is it just a vote? Will 14 states outweigh the 13? In the Parliament, you don't have states. The, the states vote at the Council of the European Union level. Right. And in the Parliament, what you find is that it's just a series of members of European parliaments. If you read literature, you'll see them written as MEPs. Okay. The MEPs sit around... And there are 720, roughly. 720 members of European Parliament. Yes. But each one represents his, his or her own country. Party. Party. Yes. Party. Yes. Because it's a parliament. So they sit in rows of, you know, either they're a coalition of European socialist parties. You'll have uh, the socialists going across countries to vote together, rather than just all the parties representing France voting together. Ben, clarify that for me a little further. Right. So Hoover makes a good point that there's a very powerful and important part of representative democracy that helps decide some matters with the European Union. But let's be brutally honest here. Who really calls the shots? And who really calls the shots is the paymaster of the European Union, which these days is Germany. How do they exercise that power? Is it just economic extortion? Yeah, I mean, especially, yeah, exactly. Especially in these times when we're talking about bailouts. So Germany can say it's, we pay for the party, we tell you what music you're going to Exactly. Make. You know, again, thinking about it, the way these, these things actually operate at kind of the, the crisis level these days, how much influence does, say, the Czech Republic or even someplace quite well governed, like, say, the Luxembourg, how much influence does Luxembourg have on what happens? Well, not very much. It's mm -hmm. Germany and France who really kind of get to call the shots. You teach European political science issues at the university. Why should Americans even care about all of this? I think if there's kind of three big reasons, three categories of reasons. There's convenience reasons, I think there's values reasons, and I think there's geopolitical reasons. Let me just mention right now the convenience reasons. These are the really easy ones. This is why anybody who's listening to your show right now who's ever been to Europe can say, oh yeah, okay, because the European Union has given us the euro, and the European Union has given us the borderless travel so that we don't need to get our passport stamp when we go from, you know, Germany to France. Those things have made our lives so much easier as travelers in Europe. And those things are thanks in large part to the European Union. By the way, if it's easier for us travelers, it's also easier for trade, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So Absolutely. everything, every convenience for me as a traveler is also a convenience for a gummy bear that's being cooked and made in Germany and packaged and sold in, in Spain. Exactly. Yeah. The, I mean, the, the relaxation of border controls mm -hmm. has had enormous benefits to European okay. trade. I'll mention really quickly values reasons. This one is kind of maybe, seems strange, but I believe in it pretty firmly. The United States and the European Union, they're both part of what we call the transatlantic community. We are the West, the West with a capital W, right? Um, our societies, our polities, our cultures believe in liberal democracy, the rule of law, respect for human rights, individual freedoms, because even American society originally came from Western Europe, there's a fundament of similar assumptions about culture and society in the United States and the European Union, which I think we should not overlook. Is that fundamentally different even than the developed democracies on the Pacific Rim in Asia? You can make that argument, yes. I mean, I think of it this way. 
most any American can be plopped down in any European Union country and feel less foreign than you, if you plop any American down in, say, Japan, China. Sure. And your third reason. And my third reasons are big geopolitical reasons. So the United States and the European Union, I think, have fairly consonant geopolitical priorities. What the U.S. wants to see in the world is not that different from what most European Union countries want to see in the world. And you can even use... And what is that? Yeah. So let's take, for example, the intervention in Libya. Promotion of uh, democratic regimes, getting rid of despotic, autocratic dictators like Gaddafi. Maintenance of some of the status quo institutions that the United States and Europe set up, like the International Monetary Fund, like the World Bank, even some things that supports this edifice of transatlantic organization like the World Trade Organization. And, are, and access to resources, markets, and mm -hmm. labor. These institutions and this kind of structure, the way it has existed for the last 60-some years, European countries in the U.S. have a tremendous amount invested so in the, that structure. That is interesting. We have our, we're both economic dynamos, and we can talk about democracy and freedom and our values, but you could also factor in, well, how much of it really is we care about these people or we care about them as a market or their oil. Without even answering that, we have this similar sort of need and concern for the rest of the world. Yeah, exactly. You can even set aside and debate how much of the kind of values and, oh, we're promoting democracy – that may or may not be the case in some things, but certainly what you just, your point is, look, we see the same interests. We want certain things for our own societies out of these places. We have the similar kind of goals. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Hilburn Buys and Ben Curtis. We're talking about the European Union. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Kawana's on the phone in Severn, Maryland. Kawana, thanks for your call. Hi, how you doing? Great. Do you have a comment or a question for Ben and Hilburn? Uh, lately, I saw with the rating, the S&P rating that came in for uh, Italy and France, the downgrading. Yes. So what is the next country? I know Italy has been in the news um, that you think is having financial problems. I think um, it's hard to say, but most European countries are in trouble. Um, Europeans have been accustomed to a, a very luxurious and expensive system that's that's generous. The government's... Uh, have enjoyed uh, supplying uh, citizens with education, health care, and a number of things that cost the state uh, money, even the respect for human rights, and the luxury of paying for development and aid abroad are things that add to the bill of a, of a government that Europeans like to have. The trouble is that at a certain point it becomes too expensive and the economy is no longer what it was in the years succeeding the Second World War. So we're looking at uh, Belgium dealing with an enormous sovereign debt, uh, we're looking at uh, Spain, perhaps. We could imagine almost all the countries in Europe, with the exception of uh, perhaps the Netherlands, Germany, Denmark, Scandinavia. To what degree is the demographic change in Europe contributing to the problems where you have basically a, a continent that was youthful with a lot of workers contributing and a few people retiring to now a geriatric continent with lavish entitlements and a lot of people retiring? That's an enormous problem because people who earned the benefits that they're enjoying now, people who are now retired or retiring soon, are under the impression, and, and rightly so, because they, they were promised this, that they earned what they're about to receive in terms of a nice retirement, perhaps enough money for a farm in France or a house down in Portugal. And young people these days don't feel as though they were, they were in the loop with that decision. They weren't, they weren't part of that decision and don't see exactly how it is that, that they have to pay such enormous taxes to, to sustain them. So the, the society is breaking the promise they made to this next generation, basically. Yes. Ben, what's your take on the, on the whole demographic makeup of Europe contributing to the problems? One of the problems that this demographic situation raises, of course, is, look, we need younger people to pay the taxes to support all these older people. Where are those people going to come from? Ah, well, right back at the immigration problem then. Turkey. Right? Exactly. you got 70 million Turks. They'd love to work. Mm -hmm. They'll go everywhere. They'll work like mad. You don't have to pay them as much yeah. as a Dane all through North Africa. Look, you have to support those older people. You have to support this whole edifice. What, How are you going to do it? What immigrants. is it with all these rich countries that they don't want immigrants, but they want immigrants? You know, and United States is the same way. We're not going to pick our apples. We're not going to carry all that drywall around. We want people who can work for lower wages, but we got to pay to give them a decent uh, future and a, and a sort of a dignified life. Exactly. I mean, that's one of the absurd things about the whole immigration debate is, is immigrants are necessary to really any economy, 
but yet they are such a convenient foil for unscrupulous politicians to exploit that and make people feel insecure about their jobs or something like that. That that, that there, happens all over the world. There should be some standard where if you won't allow immigrants in your country, you should pay a price for apples that would be on the standard that you A insist. living wage, yeah, for agricultural workers. And that's yeah. not going to happen. Yeah, well, I'd like to suggest that perhaps it should be the other way around. If you're coming someplace to work, you shouldn't be entitled necessarily as generous benefits as those people who uh, who are indigenous and have worked in that system and have set those those systems up because it's very nice to have immigrants if they come and work and are productive. The trouble is when they become comfortable and start having a feeling of entitlement to things that they haven't paid into. Then they start expecting schools and health care. That's normal. Having a healthy, well-educated population is also a form of enculturing. So what is a standard you would not give your immigrants that you would give your indigenous people? Well, that if they're not working, then, uh, then we should be able to assign them work. Just like anybody, really, it should be equal for everybody. But what it is, is Europe can no longer afford to have people sitting around on very expensive unemployment. Well, that is the big, that's the yes. big hello to me. Because, I mean, I, I was just in Italy, and even well-established families aspired to have their privileged children just land a job in the government so they didn't have to work very hard and they couldn't be fired. Indeed. And that's a, that's a prescription for an economy that's, that's going to go nowhere. And that's what Europe has created to a certain degree. Ben, is that, is that your take on Europe? Uh, yeah, especially I think in the southern countries, again, to go back to that point, that there is these kind of bloated state bureaucracies there. And again, I'm not going to kick state bureaucracies all the time because they are also a too convenient foil for unscrupulous politicians. But yeah, there's relatively unproductive economies, too much dead wood in a lot of these southern countries. What's the likelihood that that can be cleaned up? It's going to require some pretty brutal surgery. Pretty brutal, and that's hard to get elected. Yeah, politically unpopular, to say the least. Kawana, any other thoughts on the conversation? Uh, no, I'm just listening. I think some of the issues that we have in here in the United States. Yeah, it's interesting, all the parallel issues, isn't it? It is very parallel. We yes. can learn a lot by just observing Europe, and they could learn a little by observing us. Thanks for your call, Kawana. All right, thank you. We're learning what Europeans are working on as they try to form a more perfect European Union in the face of social and economic pressures that threaten to unravel the progress they've made. We'll continue with Ben Curtis and Hilburn Buys and your calls in just a moment at 877-333-RIC as we clarify what European socialism is really supposed to be about. And we'll explore how the southern versus northern immigration conflicts in Europe relate to our own issues here in the United States. We're better understanding the state of the European Union right now on Travel with Rick Steves. I wouldn't be surprised to see this market just tread water. You're listening to Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about the European Union and how it is uh, dealing with its challenges and maybe what we Americans can learn by observing and taking notes. We're joined by Hilburn Buys and Ben Curtis. Kilburn, when you think about Europe, we were talking about this immigration issue. You've got a, a fundamental issue. Is it reasonable for a country to expect its immigrant laborers to genuinely want to assimilate? Or is it just a future in this day and age of easy communication and satellite hookups where, you know, people from North Africa live as North Africans in the Netherlands? Well, we have to make a distinction between what one can expect of people and then what sort of expectations they impose upon themselves. I think uh, what you find is that de facto, perhaps, one should get used to the idea that uh, people are not going to enculturate or, or integrate. But it really makes perfect sense for anybody receiving someone or anybody going someplace to at least hold the same values. So in some sense, I don't think it's necessary for anybody to convert to Catholicism when they move to Belgium or to become a staunch anti-monarchist when they move to France. But I do think it's normal that if you come someplace, uh, you espouse the same kinds of universal values that make Europe and the United States so distinct from the rest of the world. And that's, I think, where people really feel 
personally touched by, by the immigration issue. For instance, we have people that are different and live inside Europe. And we've had one problem with them during the Second World War. But for the most part, we're very happy to have people who are Jewish, Dutch, Jewish, Belgian, Jewish, French. That's a thing that, that isn't an issue. The trouble is when people really remain Turkish. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the thing. I think there are Algerian families in the Netherlands that have been there for three generations, and they're still just as Algerian as they were when their great-grandfathers moved in. There's no assimilation going on. Indeed. Uh, you'll have that in particular in the big metropolises around, say, Paris or, or in Brussels or in Rotterdam and those places. And then, then the shame is really, from their perspective, the shame is they're unable to take advantage of where they live fully. And from our perspective as, as Europeans, we think it's a shame because we grew up thinking that we had nice values and attractive place and, and suddenly it's, it's no longer what we thought. Ben Curtis, when you think about all of the different immigration-related struggles and how each country is handling it, which countries are doing it well and which countries are, are, are failing? It's easier to think about the ones that are failing. Are there some that are shining examples of immigration is a very tough issue? Mm -hmm. Let's say this. I think Sweden, for example, is doing a good job because there is, I think, a pretty clear expectation there of some assimilation to what I will call basic Western values of respect for human rights, equal rights for various genders, um, investment in education, these basic what we would call liberal freedoms, and that is held up as a minimum standard in Sweden, yet because in part of the Swedish welfare state, there's also investment in people so that they don't lag continually from generation to generation at the bottom of the social ladder. So an immigrant has a genuine incentive to work hard and, and assimilate and be part of the system, be on the team. Exactly, and they are given the social supports, perhaps, to get out of or to climb the ladder that, you know, sometimes so that they might not that would distinguish Sweden as opposed to some countries further south, maybe. Yeah, or even, say, France, right, where there's the obvious problem that the people who grow up in the large housing projects in the outskirts of Paris, some of those people, unfortunately, do not see a way out of the uh, It's almost a ghettoization yeah, exactly, of, of the, the ghettoization. Muslim community in, in Paris. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we're exploring issues with the European Union. I'm talking with Ben Curtis and Hilburn Weiss. Hilburn, there's 27 members in the EU. What is the issue about who may be coming in, who's in and shouldn't be in? What's the proper number of nations for the European Union? Let's, let's make it very clear. I think the only rule that we can find uh, about membership to the European Union are de facto rules. There's no guideline written. However, we can find one thing in common with all countries that are members of the EU is that they are democracies, that they are a sovereign state, and that they are economically in order in some sense. So we're at 27 now. Is this likely to grow or to shrink, would you say? I think it's going to not grow very much larger beyond where it is. Um, shrinking is going to be a difficult thing to see. I think we may see it weakening. It's probably tough to pull back on it. Ben, do you think in retrospect Europe was a little reckless in growing so big so fast? I do think so. Uh, I think there are relatively few people who, at least who study these things, who would say that letting Romania and Bulgaria in as swiftly as they did was perhaps a good idea. Um, there are, of course, arguments for it, but now I'm not so sure. And there were in the urge to kind of expand and to bring ever closer union, there were some corners cut, which have, for example, letting Greece join the euro when Greece clearly did not actually meet the benchmarks necessary to join the euro. The numbers were fudged. Those were mistakes that have been made. And haste is going to make waste when it comes to economic efficiency. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, European Union is famously uh, a union of uh, 27 countries that some of them are net receivers and some of them are net givers. And there's three countries that come to mind, I think, Ireland, Portugal, and Greece, that have really been falsely made affluent because they've just freeloaded on the prosperity of the, the core countries that have better economic situation. And my understanding is when we look at it, those are the ones that received the, the heroic aid. Those are the ones that had really booming economies. Those are the ones that had scaffolding up everywhere so they could quickly spend the money they were getting from the EU before it ran out. And today, those are the countries that are rotting out at the core. My take on it would be that their relatively sorry currencies were traded for real strong euros, which are just like Deutschmarks, which didn't let them devalue the pay their workers were getting in mass. So everybody there got more affluent than they should have been, and something had to give. Exactly. I mean, the advantage that countries like Portugal, 
uh, Ireland and Greece should have had over the Germanys is much cheaper labor. But then when you bring in the euro and they lose their competitive advantage, and so that's, again, part of the problem that we're seeing in those the poorer countries of the European Union now is what competitive advantages do they have if they're still tied to this really strong currency. Because when you have your own currency, you can let it rise and fall. Whatever makes your economy fit in with the other economies, now they've lost that. Mm-hmm. How tough would it be, Hilbrun, to pull... It seems like it's easier to get into the eurozone than to get out. It's a complicated affair. Because, first of all, uh, the European Union has no protocol or system for shedding countries from the eurozone, redeveloping a currency if we have to rebuild the drachma. I'd be in favor of a drachma because it's the old, it was the oldest currency in the world when... Uh, when they quit, but redeveloping it would be an enormous expense because you'd have to set the printing presses back into motion at the National Bank. You'd need to re-employ a number of people at the National Bank that now have been have been moved to Brussels and work over there, or in Frankfurt in this particular case. And then you'd have to, at that point, find a way to fit that country into the world economy, get people to have confidence in that currency. I don't think starting up the presses is as, as tough as just re-establishing confidence in a currency that is a failed economy. Want to buy a drachma? No, I'll stick with the euro. The The big issue for me, if I was a European, is wondering, come on, the people in the north have a work ethic, people in the south know how to live well, and I'm tired of subsidizing the people in the south. You Greeks, you Italians, you Portuguese, stop your siestas and start working until you're 70 instead of retiring when you're 55. Ben? Right. I mean, that's an absolutely legitimate, I think, allegation on the part of Germans and Danes and Dutch. You know, to cut the southern countries some slack, look, how does Portugal really benefit Germany other than, you know, a nice place to go holiday? Olives on the beach. and corks. Yeah, it's olives and corks, right. So there's not a lot, yeah? But that's why we have to go back to thinking kind of where we started here today. What's the point of the European Union in the first place? Well, solidarity, security, stability, but there's tangible and intangible gains to the really advanced economies even from having the Portugals and the Greeces. So there you go. Well, Maybe it's just worth it if you're going to be a dominant economy like Germany to subsidize Portugal. Exactly. So you have a bigger family, you've got a market, and you've got a nice yeah. place to go on vacation. I mean, the United States has both California and Mississippi. And what does Mississippi do for California? Not that much. But altogether, we're somehow stronger. As I'm out and about talking about travel, I find a lot of Americans are concerned about the instability that might come with the economic struggles in Europe. And if all you did was watch the news, you might think everything's falling apart in Greece. Ben Curtis, what is your advice to travelers as far as traveling in spite of the economic crisis in Europe? I think in kind of the short run, the problems of the euro might look pretty good for Americans because the euro is weakening, and that means the dollar is strengthening. So in comparison to the last several years where the dollar was really low and Europe becomes so much more expensive for American travelers, well, the situation is reversing itself right now. But that's a short-term benefit because anybody who thinks that, oh, yeah, the euro imploding might actually turn out to be a good deal for travelers or Americans, that's just wrong. A euro implosion would be awful for the American economy for many, many reasons. You know, inflation here, companies laying off workers in the United States. So we don't want to see... So we, we want weekend. to see Europe succeed. Yeah, that's, exactly. That's best for us to succeed. Yeah, and we, we want to see European countries right now find a solution to the problems of the euro. What about just simply, is it safe to go to Europe? Is there going to be violence on the streets? Do, do travelers have concerns? Certainly they have concerns. I think as any traveler who perhaps was in uh, Athens this past fall might be able to attest. But it's going to involve paying attention to the news and seeing where popular outbursts transpire. But I don't think anybody should worry. Nobody should stay away from Europe because we're in a rough patch. One thing I've always found is it's European to to demonstrate. Uh, In France, the manifestation is sort of a way you wave the flag. And uh, for a lot of Americans, it's just too much exercise, I think, to get out in the street and march like that. But it's routine to find a million people marching in the street in Europe. Your loved ones may see it on the news back home and worry about your well-being. I like to compare it to our American fascination with our Constitution and our rights to free speech and for some people, the vehemence that the people have towards carrying weapons, the French right to demonstrate and to strike are actually enshrined in in their national documents, in their constitution, if you will. And so it's a very sensitive subject where I personally get extremely tired of being held hostage in a city where the economic system has been stopped or people are not working or the public transport doesn't work. Most people I talk with don't like it at all, but it's 
it's close to impossible to undo these sorts of things when they're that deeply enshrined into the political structure. So, so there's political challenges, and there's going to be demonstrations in the streets, and the sky's not falling. You can still travel there. Absolutely. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Hilburn Byes and Ben Curtis. We're talking about the European Union, and Gloria's on the line in Palmdale, California. Gloria, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. How are you doing today? Oh, we're doing great. Yes, um, we love traveling to Europe, and it's interesting that they have a um, more global perspective on just life in general. Here in the United States, we're very American-centric, and we think um, very much about how, you know, the matters of our country. But over there, they do understand how the countries are tied together, um, both politically and monetarily, and I just find that perspective very interesting. It really is fun to travel into a country that is not so uh, ethnocentric, basically. Absolutely. Do you have any concern, uh, Gloria, in, in your travels about traveling in, in areas where the economic crisis is bringing potential instability? We were in Athens two times over the last two years, and we weren't there during you know the riots and the unrest. But in between the country, it just seemed like it was business as usual. It, it wasn't really that much different. You know, I was just in Mykonos Santorini in Athens just a couple months ago, and there was headlines every other day about things going on in Greece, and most of it's limited to headline-grabbing demonstrations on Syntagma Square in front of the parliament. Of course, they've got major challenges, and I'd hate to be counting on a, a solid retirement if I was a Greek worker, but if you're a tourist, I find they're more eager than ever to earn your dollar and give you a good time. And it's interesting that they have the same problems over there with the retirees and the finances over there, as we do over here, with Social Security as well. We've we're taken another look at our entitlements, and, and, and Europe has relatively lavish entitlements that way, and we've got a situation where we have fewer workers and more retirees, and Europe has an even more serious adjustment in, in that area also, as they've got an even older society than we've got. Thanks for your call, Gloria. Thank you very much. You bet. Ben and Hilbrun. I've been working with a sort of a theory that we were talking about how similar Europe and America are. We're sort of brothers and sisters in so many ways on this planet, and we're both passionate about government by foreign of the people, and we're both dealing with some serious challenges that almost make us reassess what we're all about. And we're both passionately government by foreign of the people. But my theory is in the United States, we're by foreign of the people via the corporations we own. It's not a judgmental statement. It's just we're inclined to have the government make a good business environment so the corporations we own can prosper, whereas Europe is government by foreign of the people in spite of the corporations they own. The government will come in and, and be more interested in the future, sustainability, poor people, and so on. And you would be more likely to find a law that would be bad for business but maybe good for the future in Europe than you would be here. What is your take on that, Hilburn? Well... I, I agree. And I think that the great distinction is that socialism is permitted or it's a word that we're allowed to use in, in Europe where it's it's particularly profane or bad word in American English. Because of our communist red scare heritage, I guess. Yes, precisely. Yeah. And what this translates into is that uh, in many countries in Europe, a socialist politician has the ability to uh, muster a lot of votes with very attractive propositions such as, oh, I'm not going to cut uh, pensions, we're going to find a way to finance your retirement and unemployment benefits and this and that. And that's something that's much easier to vote for than somebody who says it's going to be tough and we're going to make cuts. And uh, that's the challenge of what we call the liberal, which means... You're uh, saying that's a challenge in Europe? It's it's a challenge to be a, a politician who who's in favor of perhaps reducing our sovereign debt of reducing the benefits that we have, encouraging people to go back to work because we're going to reduce our, our, our benefits, getting them back into the workforce. And how do you make that an attractive proposition yeah, and get elected? A, that's a tough pill to swallow politically. Ben, what's your take on that whole government by foreign of the people via the corporations? Yeah, there's the old saying back from the heydays of American economic power when what's good for General Motors is good for America, right? And yeah, so there was a kind of political and social model in America based on government for the corporations, by the corporations, etc. And I think you're right that the model in Europe was different. But I think what's really interesting and troubling about this time we're living through right now is both models, the American model and the European model, are in crisis and people are in malaise and there's something that's got to give. And especially there's something that's got to give when we're looking at these rising powers of India and China, Brazil, and they have different models. Especially, of course, the Chinese model uh, is seen to be this incredible success right now. And so I think we are in a period of transition, and we don't know where it's going right now for both United States and Europe. We can't, from the United States, look on to Europe and say, oh, 
that European social model is so broken and look where it's gotten them in a dead end because there are at least as many problems with the political and social model of the United States right now. So um, mm. the problems in Europe are, I would say, symptoms of a larger kind of decline or malaise and difficulties in the West in general, which brings us right back to the brothers and sisters thing. We're, yeah. we're in so the we're same in this together. bed right We're now. in yeah. this together. Mm-hmm. We're not going to profit off of each other's misfortune. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Ben Curtis and Hilburn Byes. So I'd like you both as experts on European Union affairs to look into your crystal ball. I know it's not foolproof. And try to predict 10 years from now, Hilburn Byes, what's the best and the worst scenario for the European Union and for the euro currency? I think the European Union will still exist, and so will the currency, but perhaps not everywhere where we see it today. Ben? Best scenario, in my view, Europe is stronger. It's actually more united. It's more centralized in many ways. It's a tighter union. Worst scenario, it's actually broken apart, either into maybe a two-speed Europe or you've got some countries who have fallen out of it altogether. Do you think the euro, as we know it today, will, will, will still be here in 10 years? I do think so, yeah. Hard to get out of it. It's hard to get out of it. I think there's so much political will to keep it going as it has been that it's going to take a major disaster to break it up. I think the European Union started in the rubble following World War II. It's been going for 60 years. We uh, sort of get headlines when it, when it makes a mistake and it embarrasses itself. It's a stuttering progression. Two steps forward, one step back. It's been doing that for 60 years. I would think European Union is here to stay. And uh, as Ben and Hilburn have been saying, it's a family over there. And they're going to take care of each other for their own good. Thank you, Ben Curtis. Thank you, Hilburn Byes. It's been fun thinking about the European Union as it relates to uh, the United States and travelers from the United States. Thank you, Rick. Thank you very much, Rick. No more marks or francs or liras, only euro dollars. In Spain, Portugal, and Ireland, too, only euro dollars. It's simple, don't you think? All you need is euro dollars. Euro, euro, it's the euro dollar. If you don't have any when you go to Europe, you'll be out of luck. Is it best with one currency? What do you think? I think it's time for tea. Euro, euro, it's the euro dollar. If you don't have any when you go to Europe, you'll be out of luck. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. There's more online behind the radio tab at ricksteves.com. And we'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, a monthly newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your European travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next European adventure, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.